Genesis chapter 2, verse 23. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. I heard the story one time of a young married couple, and um, it was on a particular Thanksgiving holiday, and as this young bride was preparing the the Thanksgiving turkey, her husband watched as she took a, a sharp serrated blade and she cut the top off of the bird and then laid it in the, uh, the roasting pan next to the rest of it and then slipped it into the oven. And he watched her do this and he remained silent for a little while, but he was extremely puzzled by the practice. And he, and he said, well, did you just cut the top off the, the bird? And, and, and he, she said, well, yeah, I did. And he said, well, why did you do that? He said, well, she said, well, that's just what we do. This is what my mother did, and, and it's what her mother did, and it's just kind of a family tradition. He said, well, why do you do that? And she said, well, I, I really don't know. It's just something that we've kind of always done. And so uh, the, the, the woman began to think about this a little bit, and so the next time she saw her mother, she asked the question, and she said, she said, Mom, why is it that you always cut the top off of the bird before you put it into the oven? And she said, well... Your mother, or my mother, always used to do it, and I watched her do it, and I just kind of started doing it, but, you know, I don't really exactly know why, why she did that, you know? And so she, the mother, now visited the grandmother, and she came to her, and she asked the question. She said, Mom, I've got to ask you, why did you always cut the top off of the bird? And she said, well, it's because when we were... Uh, raising you up, you know, times were tough and we lived in a small house and the, the whole bird wouldn't fit in the oven that we had. <laughs> and so in order to get the bird in, I had to cut the top off and that's why I always cut it off. Tradition. Sometimes we never ask the question why we do what we do. And something we grow quite accustomed to and quite comfortable with without ever really considering or asking the question of why we do it. So as we come to, in Genesis chapter 2 here, the origin of marriage, it's something that we're all very familiar with. We've been to weddings our whole life from the time that we're children. Many of us have grown to the point where we've gone through our own marriage ceremony, and it's something that's just a part of regular life. But have we ever asked the question, why we do what we do? We know where marriage came from. We looked at that last week as we studied the the first segment here as God um, introduced this concept to us. But why? Why do we do it the way we do it? What does it mean and what's the significance of it? When we look at God's record of creation here in the early portion of Genesis, and we see God doing things in a very calculated and very intentional way. He created everything in six literal days, 24-hour periods. He prepared a garden for the man that he would make, and then he formed the man from the dust of the ground and placed him in the garden that he had made for him. And then after seeing everything that God made, he recognized the man being alone, and he said it is not good for the man to be alone. And so God gave Adam the task of naming all of the animals in the process, realizing that there was a male and his female counterpart in every species and every part of the creation 
But he recognized that for himself, there was no counterpart, no help that was fitting for him. He was alone. And God allowed Adam to get a sense of his aloneness. And he became aware of a need that he had inside that was placed there by God. And then God, it says, caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam. And while Adam was sleeping, God opened up his side and he removed a portion of Adam's side. And with that, he literally, he built the woman. And then when Adam arose, he brought the woman to the man. And then he applies it by saying, therefore, shall a man leave his father and mother, cleave unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. Well, as I look at it, I wonder and I ask and I think, God, you thought everything out so well, but this almost appears, it almost seems as though this was an afterthought. It's something that, you know, you kind of made a mistake. You made the man, but you didn't make the woman at the beginning, and then you realized that there was something lacking, and so you went back and you amended the initial creation. But that's not our God. The Bible tells us that known of God are all his works from the beginning of the creation. That God is intentional and calculated in everything that he does. And the way that he did this was very much intentional and very much on purpose. And the reason is because not only was he accomplishing the formation of a relationship, but he was painting a picture that represents the reason for all of creation in the first place. It comes back to why God made the world at all. And it's illustrated here for us in this. God's intention for marriage. Now, the Bible tells us in the New Testament that all of the scripture speaks of Jesus. In John chapter 5, Jesus was having one of his oft interactions with the Pharisees, the religious leaders of his day. And in the argument, Jesus said to them, he said, you guys search the scriptures and in them you think that you have life. But he said that these are they or they are they which testify of me. Jesus claiming that all of the Old Testament scriptures were pointing to and looking forward to him. After Jesus rose from the dead prior to his ascension, he was walking with two disciples who were discouraged because of the crucifixion and subsequent death of Jesus Christ. And they didn't know that it was Jesus that was walking with them. And Jesus kind of came alongside and he said, hey, why is it that you guys talk together and are sad while you're making your journey? And they said, well, don't you know the things that have taken place in Jerusalem in these days about this Jesus who is supposed to be the Christ? And Jesus said, what things? And they said, what, are you crazy? Are you a stranger around here that you don't know these things? And then Jesus said, have you not read the scriptures that say that Christ must need suffer and rise again from the dead? And then it tells us this. It says that beginning with Moses, that is the book of Genesis written by Moses, he began to expound to them all of the scriptures, taking them through the entire Old Testament, explaining on an eight-mile walk how all of it looks forward to and speaks of himself. All of the Bible speaks of and points to Jesus. It testifies of him. Well, the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans chapter 5 that Adam, the first, the man who we're looking at here in our text, that he was a figure or a type of Jesus Christ. 
It says in Romans chapter 5, verse 14, that Adam was a figure of him who is to come, or a pattern. That there were things in Adam's life that overlaid or overshadowed what would be done through Jesus Christ. To the Corinthian church, Paul would say in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 45, that Jesus is the last Adam. So as Genesis here tells us about the first Adam, 1 Corinthians, Paul says that Jesus is the last Adam. And so therefore, Adam is a type or a picture or a pattern or a parable of Jesus Christ. And there's a beautiful picture of what that means and why that's significant right here in the formation of the bride. Now, the Bible teaches us that God is eternally existent in the person of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That there are three, yet they are one. The Lord our God is one Lord, one God. Now, to you and I, we understand that intellectually. We could write that on a test and say, well, that's who God is. It's who the Bible alleges that God is. But that's so far beyond our ability to comprehend and understand. What does it mean that God is eternally existence? I mean, what is an eternity? That's beyond our fathoming. I mean, we try to explain that to our kids and they say, it's this big. And it automatically has these tiny little limits on it. And then they try to say, it's from the sun to Pluto, you know. And, and I mean, we try, but what is an eternity? What does it mean that God is eternally existent? That he goes as far back as can be and that he'll go into the future as far as can be. When Moses said, what is your name? God said, tell the people that my name is I am. What it means literally is that he is the all-sufficient one, that he's self-existent, that he is in need of absolutely nothing. And so God describes himself as eternal, self-existent, and all-sufficient. Meaning that for eternity past and for eternity forever, God is in need of absolutely nothing. There's no weakness. There's no frailty. There's nothing that God could ever need. He is completely full, total, and sufficient all in and of himself. God is not a man. But although God has no needs, God did have and does have a will and desire. Things that God wants. Things that God wants to enjoy. And God had a desire for fellowship and for a loving relationship. And if you're taking notes tonight, you can just write those words down. A loving relationship. That though God had no need, God had a desire for a loving relationship. Now there are many different types of relationships that it's possible for two beings to have. You can have a business relationship wherein we are mutually relating to one another in order to have our needs or desires met. That's a business relationship. It's something that all of us are familiar with in one context or another. It's possible for us to have a servant-lord relationship with someone where there's a hierarchy that a person, because of their privilege or because of their position, they have the authority to rule over or lord over another person, and there's a relationship that exists within those dynamics. You can also have a robotic relationship. I have a robotic relationship with my car. I put the key in, and the motor hopefully does what it was designed to do, 
And we have a good relationship. I do what it wants, what it needs, and it brings me where I need to go. And so the car was made to serve me when I do the things that it you know, is designed for, for me to do. It's a robotic relationship. You can have a mercenary-type relationship with someone. And that means that I have the power to provide or to give or to protect or to supply something that is needed. And in return... The person does what I want because I have the power to make their life either miserable and blessed or really difficult and hard. And so they could be a mercenary to me and they could just appease me with their friendship or their deeds or whatever because of what I'm providing for them on the other side. And so there are many different types of relationships that we can have on a human to human level or or really on any level. But when we talk about having a loving relationship, it's completely different than any of those other things. Now, I need to preface that by saying this, that in this society, the word love has become extremely cheap. We use the same word to describe the way we feel about our food or our job and the way we feel about our spouse and our children. And those two things are worlds of difference apart. But in the biblical sense, the word love doesn't mean the way we'd feel about our food or the way we'd feel about a hobby or our recreation. But the word love in the Bible, it's a very interesting word. In the New Testament, it's the word agape. And the word is defined for us by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 through 8. And I just want to read this definition that all of us have probably heard from time to time or have read, seen written somewhere. But listen to how the Bible describes love. It says that love or charity, which is the word agape, it's the same thing, that love suffers long and is kind. It is patient and it is kind. Love envies not. It's not jealous. Love vaunteth not itself. It doesn't put itself forward. It's not assertive. Love is not puffed up. It's not prideful. Love does not behave itself unseemly or unfittingly. It doesn't seek its own. It is not easily provoked. Love thinks no evil. It's not constantly looking for the angle or the the reason why someone's doing what they're doing. Love rejoices not in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And then verse 8, just the first phrase, love never fails. And so as we seek to define what the Bible means when it talks about love, we use 1 Corinthians 13 as the guide, as the definition. And so we take every other relationship, the business relationship, the servant-lord relationship, the mercenary relationship, the robotic relationship, all of the different relationships, and we plug them into the equation of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Well, is this relationship based upon patience and kindness and an absence of pride and not puffing one up against the other, not seeking its own, getting something out of it? And we find that every other relationship fails to meet the standard or the definition of what love really is. And you say, well, what exactly is a love relationship? What does it look like? You can boil it down to one word, and that word is choice. It's a love, a relationship, that's based on appreciation, affection, and love for no other reason other than choice. 
I choose to. And God desired to have a loving relationship. And in all of what God had ever created for eternity past, he did not find something that he had made that had the capacity to have that kind of a relationship with him. The angels, they weren't created with the capacity to choose. They were programmed to do what God called them to do. Animals, beings, whatever it is that God created that someday we'll discover among all of it, there was nothing wherein God could say that I can have a loving relationship. So what did God do? God created man in his image. And the difference between man created in God's image and everything else that God ever made is that man was given a living soul. That's what God said when he breathed the breath of life into his nostrils. Made in his image, he's now a living soul. Do you know what a soul is? It's the capacity of thought, will, desire. It's the ability to think and reason and choose. That's what a soul is. It's how we feel. It's how we think. It's what makes us evaluate things and see things. And it's what gives us our freedom and our independence in the way that God made us. It's our capacity to choose. And that makes us unique from everything else that God made. We are not programmed. When you look around at nature, you see that everything is programmed in nature. We can study the migratory patterns of birds and of butterflies and of things that God made. And within a science, we can figure out where they're going to go and what they're going to do because they're programmed to do those things. Where I told you, raising bees. And we can figure out exactly what they're going to do and when they're going to do it and how they're going to do it because they've been programmed to do all of those things. But not so with man. You can never figure out what a man is going to do or a woman's going to do. We're completely and totally unpredictable because we've been given the capacity to make those decisions for ourselves. We are free moral agents, if you would. And God made us that way on purpose because it gives us the capacity to love like nothing else that God had made. Now, when God placed Adam in the Garden of Eden, Adam had a relationship with God. Now, I'm getting a little ahead of myself because, you know, that's in chapter 3 when we see the type of relationship that they had. But what we see is that it was a completely external relationship. We're told that God walked with Adam in the cool of the day. So there were times during the course of a day that God would walk with Adam, but then he would be gone and Adam would kind of be left alone by himself. And so there was a relationship, but it was an external relationship. And Adam's knowledge of God was limited to his capacity because he could only understand as much as his mind could contain. And it was limited by how much of God God revealed to Adam, which certainly had to be limited because Adam didn't have the capacity to know God in his fullness. And so though there was a relationship, it was an external relationship. There was an out outwardness to the whole thing. Now, when man fell, and I know that's a huge spoiler, <laughs> he's going to blow it. He's going to disobey. Did you guys know that? You know, When Adam partakes of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and he brings sin upon himself and subsequently death, the finite relationship that Adam had with God was cut off, and the two were separated completely. Man became completely estranged from God at that time. His spirit died, the part of man that relates to God. His soul became immediately aware of that need. His body became needy and anxious. 
And he tried to fill that then with worldly things, carnal things. He was inverted and flipped inside out, if you would. And that condition of being estranged from God was then passed on to every descendant of Adam, even to the present day. Every one of us is born into this world as enemies of God. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Paul says that very clearly. He says that we were cut off, we are alienated from the life of God. And that we were enemies by wicked works. We're separated from him from birth. And there must be something done to bring us back into that. You know, and that's kind of the, the whole point of the whole Bible and things. But we're separated from God. We're alive, but we're estranged. We're living, but we're lost. We don't know God when we come into this world. The relationship has been severed. But what that did is that it put God in just the position that he wanted to be in. He wanted to be in a position where he could reveal his love, agape love, in a way that had never been known previously, not by angels or any other part of, of creation, or anything that he had made for all of eternity. His love never been revealed. When we get to the New Testament in the book of Peter, Peter tells us that angels look into the things concerning salvation and they wonder. They're in awe of it because it, it blows their mind. They, they can't fathom it. They don't understand it. Oftentimes I think about why did Satan rebel against God thinking that he could win? I think that the reason is because there was a lot about God he probably didn't know. And he really actually thought that he could win. There was a lot of things that God never revealed about himself in eternity, even to the beings that were with him in whatever that is that someday we'll know that today we don't. But God wanted to reveal his love. And now he had man made in his image in a position where he could do it. God allowed man to live for 4,000 years in a lost state. To a point where violating God's law, violating himself, being defiled with everything that he could be defiled with, every bit of worthiness was gone from man. By the time Jesus Christ came into the world, there was absolutely nothing in us that would make God attracted to or make God love us or make God think that there was any value in us at all. And what did that do? It removed every reason for God to love a human being other than his choice that he decided to. He would get nothing from it. He would get nothing out of it. There was nothing that we could bring into that relationship. It's love based on choice. And so what did God do? God came into the world in the person of his son. God hidden literally in plain sight. And in the person of Jesus Christ... The personality of God was revealed in human form. The sovereignty of God over created things and over every realm, spiritual and physical, was revealed through Jesus Christ. What man was intended to be, had he never fallen away from God, was revealed in the person of Christ. Having authority over the creation, able to walk upon water, commanding sicknesses and diseases to just flee away. All of that manifested in the person of Christ. The kindness and compassion that defines the character and person of God as well as his fury and his power and his wrath. All of that revealed in Jesus Christ when he came into this world in the form of a man. But that's not the primary reason that he came. It was part of it. 
And it was intended and intentional. But the primary reason why God came into this world was for the work that he would do upon the cross. That he would, after living a perfect life and meeting the qualifications for a man to be in a right relationship with God, that he would then suffer upon the cross and he would endure in himself the payment and the penalty for all of the sins of mankind, the violation of the law from the sin of Adam in the garden when he partook of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, all the way through the entire realm of human history, even beyond the cross and into the present day. Every sin that mankind committed was placed upon Christ on the cross. You say, well, why was Jesus held responsible for the sins of the world? Because in order for a person to be forgiven and for God to be fair and just, somebody has to pay the price that sin's penalty deserved. And that's what God did in the person of Jesus Christ by sending him to the cross. God came into the world. He disrobed himself of his glory. He walked the fallen soil that you and I walk on every day. He lived the perfect life. He overcame every temptation and he was tempted in every point that a human being can be tempted in, yet without sin. And then he willingly endured the punishment for every sin that was ever committed when he hung on the cross and he went through his passion, rising again because he was justified. And in that, he was demonstrating to a fallen human race that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever now would not earn it, would not ever deserve it, would not ever be able to bring something into the relationship, but that whosoever would believe in him and put their trust in him for the forgiveness of their sins, that they would not perish, but they would have everlasting life. The Apostle Paul would say in Romans chapter 5, verse 5, that God demonstrated his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, the furthest place that we could be from pleasing God, that it was then that Christ died for us out of a demonstration of his love. To the Corinthian church, Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, he said that he who knew no sin, that's Jesus, became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It was a demonstration of God's love to fallen humanity, the just for the unjust, the forgiveness of sins by nothing more than by faith alone, that it might, know, that it might be known by us that God loves us. Now, in the process of Jesus hanging on the cross and dying for the sin of humanity, something interesting happened. We know that he was whipped with the flagellum. We know that a crown of thorns was pressed into his head, that he was pierced in his hands and his feet, that he was beaten and spit upon, and that his face was so messed up, Isaiah tells us, that even his own mother wouldn't be able to recognize him. But John records something that none of the other three gospel writers do, and that is that just before the sunset and the Passover was to begin, the soldiers and the Jews not wanting to leave the bodies on the cross for the Passover feast. They broke the legs of the two thieves, but coming to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead. And so one of the centurions took his spear and he pierced the side of the Savior. 
The side of the Savior was opened up and we're told that blood and water poured out onto the ground. That something came out of the side of the Son of God and remained in the earth to the marvel of those that were on looking there and seeing that take place. And then 50 days later, after Jesus had rose, after Jesus had ascended, when the number of 120 disciples were gathered in an upper room waiting for what Jesus called the promise of the Father, what is the promise of the Father? It says that in a single moment when the day of Pentecost was fully come, there was the sound of a mighty rushing wind. And the house where they were filled was filled. And cloven tongues of fire came down from heaven upon them. They began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And it says that they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. For the first time, the way was opened for man to enter into a brand new relationship with God. We're no longer now, is it an external relationship that's based upon my just knowing things about God or knowing what he can reveal to me in the finiteness of my mind or what I can earn through my religious obedience or my works. But now I can have a relationship with God where no longer is it external, but where the person of God can now come into my life. And an invitation was extended on that day by Peter himself. And he said that if you will repent and believe, God will also give to you the gift of the Holy Ghost. And on that day, there were 3,000 people that came into a brand new relationship with God. The Bible calls it being born again. What does it mean to be born again? It means that God has now cut off everything that once was and now taking something out of the side of his son that was left in the earth, he creates you brand new. Not out of the former substance that's fallen after the nature of the first Adam, but out of the very substance that was left in the earth from the person of the Son of Man. That because of the blood, because of the water, the water always a symbol of the Spirit, we are now taken out of his side and made brand new. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, it says, For you are now a new creature in Christ. For if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. And so God has now taken out of the side of his son, and he has formed a new living being to come into a relationship with himself. Now, you say, well, what does that have to do with Adam and Eve and with the marriage and the tradition and the why? Because the Apostle Paul lets us in on a mystery in Ephesians chapter 5. He tells us in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 30, he says, For we are now members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. And then he applies the meaning of that. He says, for this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined unto his wife and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. In other words, what God was doing in having his son's side opened and left in the earth and then giving it to you and I on the invitation of grace and receiving of God's love 
is he's giving us the invitation to be his very counterpart. The recipients and beneficiaries of God's desire to have a loving relationship, a communion that's closer than anything that's possible between two, where the two literally become one. Jesus would say concerning his second coming in Matthew chapter 25 that his coming would be like the coming of a bridegroom coming for his bride, exhorting that we would be awake and ready. In Revelation chapter 19, in a few different places, and then again in verse 21, or chapter 21, that's described that the, the, the new Jerusalem is prepared as the bride now made ready for the Lamb. Ephesians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul says this, He says that God, by giving us his Holy Spirit, that he has sealed us for the day of redemption and that he has given us the earnest, is the word that he uses. It literally means the down payment of the Spirit. And it's the same word that's used to imply an engagement ring. That by giving us the Holy Spirit, God has placed a ring on our finger and he has said, I am asking you if you will be my counterpart for all of eternity in heaven, and I'm giving you my spirit as the seal of that invitation. Paul would say in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2, he would say that I have espoused you to one bridegroom, even to Christ, and my desire is to present you as a chaste virgin, even unto Christ. So the Bible teaches emphatically what was taking place upon the cross is that Jesus, out of his very side, Something is being given to the person who's born again to build for Jesus Christ, his bride. And one day, he's going to come back in return and he's going to retrieve his espoused bride to himself. And listen, church, the two are going to become one. You and I have been called and privileged and blessed to be a part of the greatest, most privileged relationship that could ever exist in all of eternity, to be one with the very Son of God himself. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 9 and 10, the Apostle Paul in that same love chapter brings the meaning of that love to its conclusion by saying that now we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part will be done away. And then he says in verse 12, for now we see through a glass darkly, meaning that we don't see all things clearly. We don't even understand. But then we'll see face to face. Now we know in part, but then shall we know even as we are known. The beauty of of what awaits us in this relationship with God that we've been called into, this marriage thing, being the bride of Christ, the beauty of what awaits us in that is what's spoken of in Genesis chapter 2, the final verse, verse 25, when it says that the man and his wife were both naked and they were unashamed. They were naked and they were unashamed. Now, the picture is very clear. God desired and there was none. So from his own son's side, the bride was formed, and the two shall be, notice in Genesis that it's future tense, the two shall be one flesh. And then the only descriptive mark of the relationship is the word that he uses in verse 25 when he says naked, that they were naked and they were not ashamed. I don't mean to be redundant, but I did share with you last week that that word naked, when it talks about nakedness, 
It's not speaking merely of the fact that physically they weren't wearing any clothes. It speaks of something much deeper, much greater. It speaks of an intimacy. It speaks of a knowledge through and through. It speaks of knowing another person on such a level that there's absolutely nothing hidden at all. That the intimacy is complete and total without any separation whatsoever. Oneness. The beauty of nakedness. So what does that mean in the context of our future and the relationship that we've been called into with God in heaven? It means that we're going to know him in the most intimate, most personal, most complete way that it's possible to know another being. That's the way that we're going to know God. And it's already the way that he knows us. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. John says it this way. He says, Behold, now we are the sons of God, and it does not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And again, what Paul said to the Corinthians, that now we know in part, we prophesy in part. But then we'll know face to face. We'll know even as we are known. Think about it. Think about the royalty of the Son of God will be one with his royalty. Think about his purity and his awesomeness. Think about his mercy and his love. Think about every attribute that he is. And for you and I not to just know those things in our mind, which right now we say them and we have some picture in our mind of something. But to know those things as being unified with him. That when he takes us into his bosom, into himself, that we become one with all of that. It's a wonder of all wonders. Nothing in all of eternity, past or future, has ever known that before. And it's what God has designed and called us into. The loving relationship that's based upon nothing else other than God's decision and God's choice to love us. Incredibly powerful thing. It's interesting to me that this word nakedness is used. Of all the things that God could have said to define the terms of the relationship or the quality of the relationship, that this is the word that he used in the whole thing. It's the lone description. He says nothing else. Other. He says, hey, they were naked and they were unashamed. Let's move on and get on to the fall in the whole thing. He said, God, could you give us a little more? I mean, Dr. Laura does more than that. Oh, no, she doesn't. That is so absolutely complete in what marriage is and what it's intended to be. It's an amazing thing that happens when I sit down with a couple that is getting ready to make their vows and stand on the altar and pledge their lives to one another. Oh man, they're so in love. It's pathetic. <laughs> I always tell them, I know you're not going to listen to a word I say right now. You're not going to remember anything from this meeting and the things. But in two years when you start having problems, you can come back and I'll tell you again, you know. They're so in love, they don't need any of the counsel. They just got this thing all together and the whole thing. They're looking at each other, they're lost and the whole thing. He's the knight in shining armor, she's the damsel in distress, and it's just the match made in heaven. Everybody else can fade away, but we've got this whole thing together. And they come in with that whole thing. We're so in love. But I see something that they don't see. I see that that couple is wearing seven layers of clothing and that they are completely lying to one the other about who they really are. There's no clue at all. He's wearing a shirt that has a Superman logo on it. <laughs> and she's looking at that logo and she's going, he is my Superman. He can fly to the moon and back. 
And everything that he has on him, he is educated. He is competent. He is able. This is my life. I've got one. This is so good. He's got these pants on that make his legs look like he must be Arnold. (laughs) He can support me. He could carry me through. There is nothing he won't be able to handle. When I'm weak, he'll just throw me up on his shoulder and he'll be able to carry me through. I mean, look at his legs. They're so strong. With shoes like that, he's a man with a plan. He knows where he's going. He's got direction. He's got the straight path laid out for how he's going to bring me and us to where we're designed to be, where we're going to be. Look at his belt. He's got it all tied together. Everything is together. He's perfect. His hair, the expression of clean, cleanliness, fun. He's alive. I mean, just look at it. His cologne. He doesn't need cologne. (laughs) He's just got class. It's an accent. It's, It's so good. He's got a taste for the finest. Look at his jacket. He's a man who's going to keep me warm. He's caring. Look at his watch. He's diligent. He's scheduled. He's calculated. He knows where he's been and where he's going. Look at his wallet. (laughs) He's generous. He's a giver. We went out last night and he proved it. And just his overall appearance, man, he is just the one. He's looking at her. We'll skip this part. (laughs) She's the damsel in distress. She looks like this 24-7. The hair, the makeup, the lipstick, snow white teeth, the smile, that thing she does, she's into me. She's always going to be into me. All the time. This is going to be so good. Her taste, her modesty, she knows how to have fun. Her gaze, it's all about me. She's ready to follow. Oh, and they're, they're just lying to each other. <laughs> they're lying to themselves, too. Then the wedding comes. And the clothes begin to come off. Now, please, I'm speaking spiritually, figuratively, <laughs> This is not going that way, okay? Not at all. Not even 1%. But the clothes begin to come off. Soon she begins to realize, Superman. Not only can he not fly, I'm not even sure if he can walk. The pants come off, and it's not Arnold. It's Pee Wee. Carry me. He, he could barely carry himself. You know, he, did he even tie the shoes he was wearing when we were engaged? He doesn't have a clue where he's going, much less does he know how to lead me. She, he looks at her, and he says, come on, a headache? <laughs> you are so into me. I mean, what, what's going on in this whole thing? And as the clothes begin to come off, the nakedness begins to be exposed. And what one the other really is begins to surface. It begins to come out. And then, well, a couple things, discovery begins to happen. One of three things happens. The one might look at the other and say, okay, I see that. 
but I'm going to change it. I'm going to make sure it doesn't stay that way. That might be what you are, but it's not what you're going to be when I'm done with you. <laughs> Little does he or she realize that that's not going to change maybe so quickly or easily or even maybe ever. Because that's the way they're made. It's what they are. They're naked. It's not the clothes anymore. It's not what they're trying to cover up anymore. It's what they are. If not to change, they might say, as often they do when they come to me that two years later, they say, I want out of this. I was deceived. They lied to me. They put themselves forward to be something that they absolutely are not, and I want out. The contract is null and void. This is not what I agreed to and signed up for. He was Superman. <laughs> now he can't even get a job. I want out of this relationship. Or number three, and the most beautiful thing that can ever happen is when the nakedness begins to appear, and when all the clothes begin to be stripped away, the one looks at the other and says, you know what? No, you're not maybe everything that I thought that you might be, or marriage isn't everything that I thought it would be when we sat in that office or when we stood on that aisle and looked at each other and the tears streamed down our face. But regardless of what you are or were with your clothes on, I see you and know you now for what you are with your clothes off. And I choose that I'm going to grow and I'm going to love you in spite of what you are that maybe isn't what I expected or isn't what I hoped for. And maybe, just maybe, in the years that go on in our relationship, more and more can come off and we can learn more and more about each other and we can have a relationship that goes beyond the intimacy that any other two human beings can have in the world. Where it isn't about what you do for me or what I can do for you or what I expect of you and my expectations are. But it's about love that's based upon a choice. The highest form of love that exists in all the universe, the love that God demonstrated in the person of Christ. That's a beautiful thing when it begins to happen. Now, I share that to say that we do the same thing to God. We come to him. He comes to us. He died. He rose. We get saved. We're born again. Life is new. The lights are on. Things are change, changing in our lives. You know what we do? We put all kinds of spiritual clothes on. God, I'm going to be this for you. God, I'm going to be the best Christian that ever was. God, prayer, you've never heard prayer till you've heard me pray. God, you've never seen devotion till you've seen the devotion. Lover of your word, God, I can't get enough of it. I'm in the Bible constantly. You want a witness? You want people one to Christ? I'm your guy. I'm your girl, God. I'm going to do it for you. You're never going to be disappointed in anything that I can bring for you. God, I'm not going to let you down in this decision that you made to marry to take me into yourself. Lord, I'm not going to let you down. And then we walk with him for a little while. And we find that our willpower isn't strong enough to overcome the addictions that we carried into our Christian promise. We walk with him for a little while and we realize that our willpower isn't enough to keep our devotion as strong as we promised that it would be or that we think that it should. Or the standard, perhaps, that we see laid out in Scripture that someone lays upon us. And as those things begin stripped away, we, we kind of cover up and we go, no, God, th this, this can't be, you know. Or we're disillusioned. 
by something that we maybe thought that he would do. And we realize maybe my profession of faith and love for God is conditioned on something that I was hoping that he would do for me. And all of a sudden, there's a relationship with God. And we wonder, well, what kind of a relationship is this? Is it a business relationship? God, I do this for you. You do this for me. Is it just simply servant Lord where you are God and I am slave and I just do whatever you want and at the end of the day we just settle accounts and go our separate ways? God, am I a mercenary where I just serve you and follow you and go to church and do things because I want you to take care of me or because I need peace and joy or I'll be so anxious I'll blow my brains out otherwise? Is this a robotic relationship where I'm just praying thank you God for this food today? Or is there a relationship with God that's based on love? Can I accept the fact that God loves me because he loves me? The Bible says that all things are naked and opened before the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Meaning that before God even saved you, he already saw you right to the very core. He knows you and me better than we know ourselves. How many in here know how many hairs are on your head? He does. He knows you better than you know you. And he has already seen every weakness, every frailty, and he desires to love you anyway in spite of those things. Do you love him that way? Or is your love conditioned on something? Well, God, I'm not going to follow you anymore because you didn't come through. Because you didn't give me that job or that person. Or you didn't... Or God, I... What are the terms? Why do we love him the way we love him? Listen, the kind of love that God gives to us, unconditional, no strings attached, no reason, that kind of love completes a person and that kind of love changes a person. And we are brought into that relationship with God. There was a point in my marriage, probably about 10 years in, we're going to be 18 years this year, that we were out on a Sunday afternoon and we were hiking or biking or doing something outdoorsy because that's what people with a lot of kids do. (laughs) And Georgia said to me as we were doing that, she said, I'm so blessed. She said, I've always wanted to do this on a Sunday afternoon. And I said, well, what do you mean? And she said, well, you always used to nap on Sunday afternoons. (laughs) And I hated it. She said, because I always wanted to go outside and you would sleep, you know. I was training for the ministry. It was at church all morning. I'd come home, kind of be exhausted in the whole thing. And whatever we were doing, I stopped and I turned and I looked at her and I said, what? And she said, yeah. You know, she said, you always used to take a nap and I always wanted to be doing this. And I'm so blessed that now this is what we do. This is kind of normal. We do this all the time. And I said, yeah, yeah, no, I get that. That's great. I'm glad to be out here, too. I said, but what's bothering me right now is that you hated the fact that I was napping, but you never said a word to me about it. She said, oh, I just figured that God would change you in time. (laughs) And he did. Win-win, right? And I said, yeah, kind of, but what else bothers you about me that you've never told me, you know, in this whole thing. I'm praying about it. (laughs) Why do I share that? Not because I want to brag about the fact that I have a wife that doesn't complain much, that I I do have that, you know. (laughs) It's okay, she doesn't have a husband that doesn't complain much. It can't go both ways, you know. 
But what I've learned from watching the way that my wife has dealt with me is that I have seen that love has an incredible power when it is not conditioned on something to change a person when God is brought into the equation. I have seen more change in my life as a result of my wife's patient, consistent, unconditional love than I could ever have seen through her continued telling me what every problem, flaw, and fault is as she sees those things exposed in me. Pants come off. Look at your legs. Come Do something. Get, up, get out. Do, would you? I see it. It's okay. I accept it. God, change me, not him. God, work in me, not them. And love fills the need, and the Spirit makes the change in his time, in his way, in its complete change, in its real change from the inside out, not the reformation of behavior. And there's a world of difference. Faith works by love. And change happens by love. God changes us with his love. And we change each other with our love and our acceptance in the whole thing. It's an amazing thing that happens when you watch a married couple, and we're winding to a close. Um, Ashley and Brad, you guys can come on up for, for our closing. But it's an amazing thing that happens when you watch a couple over the course of their marriage. They go from zeal to cooling to disillusionment to a quiet quitting. <laughs> kind of sounds like our Christianity, doesn't it? Zeal, <laughs> cooling, disillusionment. Quiet quitting, ah, forget the whole thing, you know. But if it endures, it changes, and it can become constant love. It can become the real thing. It happens with a couple. They quit, ah, I'm married, but not married. We're married, but, you know, we kind of have our own lives, and we do our own thing, and it's gone so far, but no further. And I mean, nakedness is long gone, you know, in the, in the figurative sense. You know, we, we don't even try that anymore. We've just learned where, where this whole thing just doesn't work, and the whole thing, we just quit and the whole thing. And sometimes couples, though, after a while, they begin to get it. They begin to say, you know what? What's the point of being married if we're not going to experience what God designed it to be? The two becoming one and knowing one another in the, in the whole thing in the way that they're supposed to. Every now and again, and I've seen it happen even recently here in the church, a couple will come in that has a set of circumstances brought into their lives by God that allows all of the clothing to come off and for them to see each other for what they really are. And sometimes by His grace, when that happens, there's an amazing acceptance that happens and a freedom that ensues. The man sees the woman for what she really is, the heart of hearts, all of its disgustingness. The woman sees the man for what he is, truly is, all of its empty, void, disgusting vanity. And the two look at each other, and they see it. for It's all there. It's all laid out, the whole mess of it, all exposed. And when it can happen that the woman can look at the man and the man can look at the woman and say, you know what? I choose to love you anyway. I see it. I see what it is. I see what you are. And I love you. And the other can look back and say, you know what? I love you. And I see what you are, and I forgive you for what you are. And I don't look at it, and I don't choose to make that the definition of who you are, but I love you because of you. And what happens in that marriage is now there is an amazing freedom and fellowship, because no more is it two, hiding, separating, quitting, but the two become one.
That's God's desire. It's God's future for us with Him. We're going to know Him in that way. But until that time, we have a spouse. Many of us here, some seeking. Some, maybe you have an unsaved spouse. So you say, well, what do you do? Here's what you do. Don't quit. Don't give up. Invite God in. Say, God, I want to know what this is. I want to know the beauty of it. I want to experience the depth of it. I want to taste it for myself. Oh, Lord, would you give it? Would you give me the grace, Lord, to deal with my own nakedness and the things I hate about myself, that I would be able to uncover them and let the chips fall where they may? And God, that you would bring our marriage to a place where we could truly love each other like Christ loved the church, unconditional, no strings attached, no expectations. Only God can do it. If you're here tonight and you're married and you're struggling, or if you just know and sense in your heart that there is more, you have three choices. You can ignore it and you can go on year after year in the shallow existence of a halfway marriage. You can try to fix it yourself and in the process make a huge mess of things, even more than you could ever think or comprehend. Or you can say, Lord, you're the third strand. We're both naked and open before you. We've made a promise and a covenant that we belong to you. And Lord, it's our desire to be one in Christ. As we close tonight, I invite you, as married couples, even if you're half of a couple, maybe the other half isn't saved, and you just want to come to God in that way, we're going to close in song. The altar is open for you to just come, kneel with your spouse. No words need to be exchanged. A heart open before God to say, God, take this marriage, make it what it could. You could have a wonderful marriage, but you just sense in your heart that there's more. There can be more. This isn't what God made it to be. There's more. Come, give it to God. Open your heart, say, God, let there be nakedness in the purest sense, in the fullest sense. Father, we thank you tonight for your word. We thank you for your ways. We thank you for the beautiful illustration that we're given. And we ask you now, Father, in Jesus' name, that your Holy Spirit would descend upon this house. That is those, Lord, tonight that need you, that need you desperately, those tonight that are living in a shell of an expression of what you desire human love to be, Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would begin an amazing healing process tonight. Oh, Father, that you would heal. Oh, Father, that you would restore. Oh, Father, that you would fill. Oh, Father, that you would give love unconditional, that we might have the thing that you longed for and the thing that more than anything we long for. And Father, that tonight in this place that your love would so saturate the air that we would sense that it's worth it. That whatever the expense, whatever the exposure, whatever the cost, it's worth it, O oh God, to have what you give. And so, Lord, would you do it now? We ask, Lord Jesus, for an incredible move of your spirit now, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.